0: Good morning. morning. Feeling good to be alive today? Beats the alternative, right? Well, maybe not. Good things are coming, too. Good things are coming to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get into the word, let's pray together. Father, we love you. When we see the works of your hands in this world it's captivating especially once we get behind thinking all of this and all of this and all of that is done by people and see your behind the curtain movements we are blown away at all that you do how you do it the ends that you uh, seek to achieve, and that's in the world when we get to our own lives and we see what you have done, the men and women and boys and girls that you are making us into calling us your own, totally apart from the messes that we've made simply because of Jesus it's, we're left with only worship and praise. And we lift you high this morning for being a God who exceeds our expectations, one who soars above our imaginations and yet is so capable of wrapping us in your arms and embracing us and holding us, caring for us and carrying us and assuring us and reminding us and one day taking us to be with yourself. And we look forward to that day. I pray this morning as we listen to you and to the conversation that your son had with someone who is kind of stands out in the scripture because he can really represent every man in many ways. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that you would silence the enemy so that his noise and his confusion but be silenced. Instead, we'd hear, hear from heaven this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to teach you a Latin word this morning. How many ever had Latin in school? Anybody? One? That's it? It's a dead language. I get it. But it's a, it's a fun language. So um, repeat this after me. Amanita, Amanita. Say it again. Amenita. Th- this will be on the quiz at the end of the sermon. Uh, the second part of the word, uh, second word is phalloides. Say it with me, phalloides. All right, put it together. Amanita phalloides. You have any idea what that is? Yeah, I didn't either till about a week ago. About three years ago in Northern California, a young mom grilled up some mushrooms for her family. It was her, her husband, 18-month-old daughter, a 38 year old sister and a family friend. And within nine hours, all of them were in the hospital. Because they had eaten unknowingly the mushrooms that the Mother got from someone else who had picked them high in the mountains earlier that day, was this Amanita phyloites, also called the death cap mushrooms. Now, fortunately, three of, the family, or three of the people went home after receiving uh, IVs of fluids, and eventually they were released. But the little 18-month-old girl had to have a liver transplant and has permanent neurological damage. The 38-year-old sister also had to have a liver transplant. This mushroom will kill you within a week. And interestingly enough, in my research, I discovered there was an article written in the Atlantic uh, magazine about a month ago on this mushroom, and this was the interesting statement that the author made. There's nothing in the taste that tells you what you're eating is about to kill you. There's nothing in the taste that tells you what you're eating is about to kill you. And isn't it true that there are a lot of things in life that are deadly that look harmless? There are a lot of things in life that are actually deadly, but they appear so harmless, so innocent. You know, the first time someone sticks a needle in their arm, and plugs heroin into it, it looks so innocent. Your friends, it look, they seem to be enjoying life more. You see somebody on the job that, is attractive to you, more attractive to you than your husband or your wife, and just a little fling, just a little affair. Have you ever thought that about money? I'm gonna talk about that a little today. So for the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been contrasting, as we look uh, in the book of Luke, he's been contrasting what it is that gains a person his kingdom and what doesn't. And so two weeks ago, Jesus says, if you admit you're a sinner, God will offer mercy. If you don't, he won't. Last week, with childlike faith, you become a child of God, and without it, you don't. And today, we're going to listen to him say, make anything else your master, and you're going to lose everything. You make me your master, and you gain everything. We are in Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 18 this morning, talking about misplaced value. Luke 18 Verse 18, if you don't have a Bible smartphone with you, you can look on the screen. Once a religious leader, uh, there's some question about that. Um, He was a ruler of some kind, but Matthew tells us that he was young. So not sure that he was actually a religious leader. He was some kind of leader. He asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. And it's interesting, you go back to all the rabbinic literature in Jesus' day and actually 400 years before that, and you can't find even one instance where a rabbi, teacher, was called good. That word was reserved exclusively for God. And so Jesus kind of called him out on that here. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard this answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, "Hmm, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, those who heard this said, well, then who in the world can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. And Peter said, well, we've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. Now the thing that, I, uh, that struck me this week when I was studying this text again was that this man is maybe not chasing the kind of thing that Jesus wanted him to be chasing. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. This is a man who's chasing heaven. A man who's chasing heaven. And so Jesus, uh, when he says to him, um, after he says to him, you know, you really shouldn't be calling me good, it's interesting to me that Jesus called him out on that because it might sound as if the that Jesus is saying, I'm not God. He said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And some have uh, pointed to that. Some say, see, this is evidence that Jesus never claimed to be God. And yet maybe Jesus was simply toying with him. You're calling me good. Isn't that a word that we all reserve just for God? He says, why do you call me good? What's behind that? So anyway, Jesus uh, Answers his question this way. You know the commandments. Uh, Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. uh, Don't steal. uh, Don't bear false witness. Don't testify uh, wrongly against someone. Honor your father and mother. And if you go to Matthew's account of this, uh, there was one more that was included. And that uh, um, that was the other one. I just blanked out. So somebody look up Exodus 20 and find it for me. I'll get back to you. Here's the point. In the ten commandments there are six commandments that speak about how we relate to one another and there are four commandments that speak about how we relate to god and the the five that jesus listed here including the sixth one in matthew are all about they're the all the commandments that speak about how we treat one another don't commit adultery don't take someone else's husband or wife don't murder don't take someone else's life don't steal Don't take someone else's stuff. Don't bear false witness. Don't take someone's reputation. Honor your father and your mother. Don't take away the respect that they have earned as your parents. What he didn't mention was do not have any other gods before you. He didn't mention do not make an idol and worship it. He didn't mention do not misuse the name of the Lord. And he didn't mention. Uh, honor the Sabbath, which is a treatment of God. Now, Jesus corrected that down the road and said, no, God gave the Sabbath for your release and relief, but it was all about, it was about God's holiness because God rested on the sixth day and now we were called to be like God and taking that rest as well, or the seventh day, sorry. Anybody find it? What? love your neighbor as yourself now the man heard the five commandments that jesus gave and thought yes i am good to go he came to jesus expecting that if he's going to get internal uh, eternal life that he's going to have to do something else in addition to what he's already been doing but now jesus has brought out these five commandments and he's like i'm good I've kept these all ever since I was a little kid. Now, Jesus didn't, didn't uh, he didn't object to his claim. If I would have been there, I would have. Why? I would have said, okay, you're saying you've never committed adultery. Are you, are you telling me you've never looked at a woman and said, oh, man, I'd love to get my hands on that? Because Jesus describes that defines that in Matthew 5 as what? Adultery. Mental adultery. I would have loved to ask the man, you mean to tell me you have never gotten boiling mad at someone ever since you were a child? Because in Matthew 5, Jesus defines that as mental murder. And you're really seriously going to try to convince me that ever since you were a kid, let's say six years old, let's say nine years old, you've never even told one lie? Careful, because how you answer this, I'm suspicious you're about to tell another one. But Jesus did not call him out on that. Should have. Should uh, Don't misunderstand me, I'm not second-guessing the Lord. But certainly his claim was not legit. What was interesting, though, is that the man was looking at the law, Ten Commandments, part of the law of Moses. He was looking at the law and and expecting the law to um, justify him, to declare him innocent. And the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us the law, the law was never intended to justify anybody. In fact, all it was intended to do was condemn us. Let me show you a verse, Romans chapter three, verse 19. Romans three nineteen says this. Obviously, the law applies, and this is not only the Ten Commandments, but all the other 603 laws of the Old Testament of Moses, uh, the law of Moses, Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God. They are all in the same boat. We're all equally condemned under the law precisely because of the truth that this man was lying about that he had never been able to keep the whole law. Here's an interesting little tidbit. Go to Galatians, same reference, 3.19. Galatians 3.19 says the exact same thing. Why then was the law given? Answer, it was given alongside the promise, which is the promise of a future Messiah to save us, to deliver us. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. And so the law was not given to us in in hopes that we would somehow be able to keep it, but that in trying to keep it, it would be revealed to us, I I can't do this. I'm going to fail again and again and again. Where is there hope for me? Answer, Jesus. The gospel, that's where the hope is. So the man claimed to have kept all these Horizontal commandments about how he treats other people. Now Jesus is going to ask the, about the other commandments. Because he says to the man, one thing you lack, I want you to go and take everything you own. I want you to sell your, put your house on the market and sell it. I want you to get the cars out of your garage and sell them. I want you to take your big screen TV. I want you to sell it. I want you to call up your financial planner and totally divest yourself of all your stocks, all your bonds, all your investments, cash out, your 401k and all your retirement. And then I want you to walk up and down the streets of the barrio and the ghettos. And I want you to hand out all the money that you had so that you're left with nothing. You shall have no other God before me. You shall make no idol and bow down and worship it. You shall not misuse my name. Do you see how Jesus got to the other commandments? Because the man was very wealthy and went away very sad because he was very sure he couldn't do this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now let's just stop here and put ourselves in the position of the man. Because if you have asked the question ever or are asking it now, should I do this? Does Jesus want me to do this? You join the company of millions and millions of Christians who have gone before you. Is this what Jesus wants you to do and me to do? Should we sell our house and rent an apartment? Should we sell our cars and walk? Should we get rid of all of our savings and our investments and our retirement fund in the hopes that someone will be kind enough to take us in when we have no place to stay? And I don't think the answer is yet. It's interesting. You go throughout the New Testament after this and you never find find anywhere else where this was depicted, assumed, or asked. Nevertheless, when you read Jesus' words, you can't help but con- come to the conclusion that Jesus is simply uneasy about money. Nine tenths of all of the gospel materials Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nine t- uh, I'm sorry, one tenth of all that material has to do with money. Almost half of the parables that Jesus told had to do with money. He is uniformly uneasy. He owned almost nothing. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't have an apartment. I don't have a motel room. I don't own a house. I don't even have a room that's rented. Jesus is uniformly uneasy about money. Why is that? because probably money heads the list of an alternate God. It is the easiest thing to capture a human being's heart. And so for this man, wealth was in the way. He wanted eternal life, but his wealth was in the way. I see him having two problems. The first one was, he was already a disciple. It's just that he was a disciple of possessions and money. And Jesus will not compete with something else that means everything to us. If you get nothing else out of the sermon, hear that. Jesus will not compete with something else that means everything to us. Problem number two that he had is that he primarily wanted a ticket to heaven. He primarily wanted a ticket to heaven. He was chasing heaven. Jesus wants disciples It takes a moment to buy a ticket. It takes a lifetime to be a disciple. It's kind of like if you uh, commute on a train uh, or subway to work. Um, You get on in the morning and you have, let's say, nine miles to get to work. And it's all about, for you, it's all about the destination. You just want to get to this place so that you can do what you need to do. But what about the commute? not just a destination, you, you, you've got a commute. What, what do you do during the commute? Read the paper, read a book, try to pass the time, listen to music. But even for us as believers, the commute matters to Jesus. There's people on there that need Jesus. There are people on there who have Jesus who need encouragement. The, the commute matters to Jesus as much As the destination does verse 23 he became very sad for he was very rich his wealth was in the way and Jesus turns to his disciples and says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and forget everything you've ever heard in your Bible studies and in your sermons where it's been explained that there wasn't a real furry camel, it wasn't a real tiny needle, it really was. It was hyperbole, but Jesus really meant a big, furry, one-humped camel, and he really meant a tiny little needle, because he really believed that money is really a problem when it comes to people wanting eternal life. Now this didn't make sense to his disciples because they had always concluded that if you had a big house and a full garage and a plump um, retirement fund that was a sign that God really thought a lot of you. And the more money you had, the more treasured you were by God. The more wealth you uh, appeared to have, the, 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 the more God was was happy with you, the more clear it was that you were doing the right things. And so for the disciples, this just didn't make any sense. If it's really, really hard for a rich person to get into heaven, who who in the world can get into heaven? Because surely the poor man or the middle-class woman is not approved by God to the degree that the, the wealthy man is. Didn't understand That wealth, although sometimes it is a blessing, perhaps far more often is a curse. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, we looked at this a number of months ago, it is impossible to serve two masters. You can serve money or you can serve God. And we could talk about a hundred things, this morning, we can serve this, or we can serve God. We can serve that, or we can serve God. But we cannot serve two masters. Now, the disciples, these guys were chasing something different than the rich man was. They were chasing not just heaven, but the God of heaven. And so they say here, in the text, they turn out and say, well, we've given up, verse 28, we've left our homes to follow you. In other words, we've, we've, we have given up the stuff that you were calling this man to give. So what do we get out of it? And in the same account, Matthew, uh, Jesus tells these 12 disciples that they're going to be seated on 12 thrones in the, in the kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But here all he says, look, you're going to get eternal life. And you're going to also get many times here in this life what you've given up. Now, I have to really be careful here because if you, we've given up a home. We've given up a family. We know that at least Peter was married, and so he left his wife to go on the ministry trail. But there are a variety of things that people left, gave up, and we want to be careful not to see in that, okay, if I, if I leave one wife behind, I'm going to get 100 wives. That's not Christianity. That's Islam. Uh, if, I, if I leave a, a car behind, I'm, I'm going to get a hundred cars. That's not Christianity. That's the prosperity gospel. Jesus is talking about a, a, a totally different a way of thinking. He's talking about a, a, a way of looking at not the world through the material lens, but for example, when I leave people behind, when my family cuts me off because I've become a Christian... Last year when we were overseas, the week before we arrived, and we're not going to name the country since this is being recorded, uh, our our missionary friends had baptized a woman who had just gotten divorced because she had become a Christian. Her husband said, fine, you're out. That same day they baptized a 17-year-old boy whose father had just kicked him out of the house because he had become a Christian. If If you lose family members and you lose friends, You gain all kinds of brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Many of us have experienced going uh, either places in this country or outside this country, and we've run into total strangers who've instantly become family members because we find out they know Jesus like we know Jesus. And they invite us to their homes, and they serve us food because we're family now. We didn't know each other before, but we're family because we both love and serve Jesus. And you will get many times over in this life what you've lost. Not only that, but because you you start to look at the world differently as a follower of Jesus, the money begins to lose its luster. The, The wealth begins to lose its pull on you. And you can say with the disciples, after having been in prison, after having been flogged, to come back and say, we rejoice that we were counted worthy. To suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Because things change as we follow Jesus. Now I want to ask you here this morning, and if you if if you're here and you don't know Christ, this this is the thrust of this text. It is spoken to someone who does not yet know Christ. And it is a warning to those who would seek to have the benefits without giving up the previous masters. So I wanna ask you this morning if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what is your current master? What is your current master? Is Is it money? Is it your career? Is it heroin? Is it an affair? Is it academic or artistic or business achievement? Young people and older, is it video games? Is it some sort of out of balance loyalty to family that makes you do things that displease the Lord? Is it sports? We're in the middle of March madness. Is it fashion? Is it entertainment? It's not just hard to switch to Jesus when money's your master. It's hard to switch to Jesus when anything's your master. Make anything else your master and you're going to lose everything. Make Jesus your master and he says you're going to gain everything. And even though this text is to an unbeliever, for the many of us who are believers in here. This kind of conversation is a reminder for us to go back and just review, okay, I started out with just Jesus, but over the years I've I've put Jesus here, Jesus is here, and this has become more and more and more important in my life, and I only have so much capacity, so I'm increasingly squeezing Jesus out to, to the margins And he's on the margins and this is my master. And I think we need to constantly go back in our lives and review is that the case with something? Is there something in my life that has moved Jesus to the margins and has become my now reigning master? And where I've misplaced value. I've diminished value for him and increased value for this. I don't know if you've ever read any of the Harry Potter books. Um, I haven't, but I know they're very, very popular. When J.K. Rowling wrote her very first book, uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the first person to interview her, the first public person to give her any kind of publicity was a man by the name of Nigel Reynolds, Here's this no-name, new authors, never written anything, nobody knows who she is. He interviews her. He's very unimpressed both with her and the book. She gives him a copy, a first-edition copy of that book. He goes back to his office. Because he's unimpressed both with her and the book, he throws the book in the trash can, a book that today would be worth $50,000. Sometimes we place value on the wrong thing or the wrong person. And sometimes the price is simply a loss of revenue. Sometimes the loss is far greater. Let's pray. Father, um, in these moments I pray that you would put me, us under the microscope, see if there's anything that has moved our Savior to the margins and he has been replaced by another pseudo-master. It might be our careers. It might be that we are either in an affair, a marital affair, or contemplating one. It might be money and all the glorious things that money can buy for us. It might be athletics, either playing them or absorbed with watching them endlessly. It be a hundred different things. Only you know the magnitude of loyalties in my heart. Only you know the diminished loyalties of our hearts. And so Holy Spirit, move in our individual hearts. Pop up those things that we have told ourselves are simply enjoyable diversions, but which in fact have become our pseudo-Messiahs. Father, unlock the prison doors that any of us may have and set us free, liberate us to serve the master, the only master who gives true freedom, amen.